From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Good afternoon and thanks so much for being with us on this Thursday, July 13th. As you've been hearing in the news, some positive news with a tentative deal being reached between employers and workers at BC Ports as that strike stretched to the almost two-week mark. A statement from the BC Maritime Employers Association says it has reached a four-year agreement with the International Longshore and Warehouse Union Canada. That's the union that represents about 7,400 workers. The job action as you'll recall, started on July 1st. The tentative deal also comes after the federal labour minister ordered a mediator to issue terms of possible settlement earlier this week, saying that the gap in the deadlocked talks was not enough to justify any continued work stoppage. Joining us now to talk a little bit more about this is Fiona Famulak, President and CEO of the BC Chamber of Commerce. Thank you so much for taking some time with us. Thank you, Jill, for the opportunity. Uh, well, I, I know that it's a very busy time and everybody is quickly or trying to look at what this deal means and how quickly things can get back on track. But what was your response when you first heard that there is a tentative deal? Uh, well, we're absolutely encouraged by the progress uh, that we read about about an hour ago. And uh, we appreciate the efforts of Minister O'Regan to get the two parties to uh, a tentative agreement. So uh, on that front, very encouraged. However, it's a tentative agreement, which means it's not yet ratified. And meantime, the port infrastructure is not an operation, which means that businesses are unable to import and export. So uh, we are looking for a, a swift and successful uh, ratification process. And in the event that ratification is not possible, then we would be calling and expect the federal government to step in again and use every tool in their toolbox to bring an end to a strike that's having a profound effect uh, on Canadians and businesses across the country. Uh, we heard from uh, the Maritime Employers Association, uh, the association just a short time ago, putting out a statement on this, uh, confirming that that tentative agreement has been reached. Uh, there's a line in that statement as well that says, uh, we must collectively work together to not only restore cargo operations as quickly and safely as possible, but also to rebuild the reputation of Canada's largest gateway. Uh, have you, I know it's still breaking and this is all new information, but d- did you get or do you have any sense of of how quickly cargo operations will be restored. Does it have to wait, do you think, until the ratification? I'm not familiar with the details of the tentative agreement, so I can't answer that specifically, Jill. But what I can tell you is um, that the Vancouver Fraser Port Authority and the Prince Rupert Port Authority are Canada's largest and third largest ports. Uh, They're vital conduits for international trade to and from Canada, and they move approximately $8 million of cargo per day. So we're at day 13 right now. We're over $10.4 billion worth of cargo um, that hasn't been either imported or exported to, to Canada. I also can tell you that as of yesterday, there was approximately 63,000 containers uh, sitting on cargo ships um, uh, on the water. And uh, by the end of July, if this dispute is not resolved, that number will likely balloon to 245,000 containers. So uh, there's much to move. And what I can tell you, having spoken uh, extensively to our business community across the province, 
our manufacturers in particular are telling us that for every day lost during the strike, uh, it's approximately three to four days to catch up. So again, multiplying that by 13 days, uh, our manufacturers are already at least a month behind before they can catch up. So the sooner a deal is struck, the better. And when you talk about those numbers as well, 63,000 containers, the potential for it to be 245,000 containers. I mean, it's hard to even try and imagine that much, uh, that many containers that are stuck and kind of in limbo, but also the the ripple down effect of that and just the sheer number of businesses that are being impacted. Absolutely. It's businesses right across the country. Uh, Of course, I, my focus is on our businesses here in British Columbia, and I can tell you that uh, they are absolutely being impacted by uh, the strike. Manufacturers are waiting for product, uh, either to complete their summer-fall orders, everything from raw materials to glassware to steel for rebar. Um, retailers are waiting for their orders. Some are assessing uh, the, the risk of losing their international contracts due to the unreliability of the of the system and also Jill businesses are are looking hard at their operational plans and their staffing schedules uh, nobody wants to lay people off but at the same time it's a hard cost to swallow when it's impossible for staff to be productive because they don't have the materials that they need so this is uh, having a profound effect we've seen to uh, this week uh, larger companies here and across the country have chosen to, uh, in, in the case of Canfor, for example, curtail some operations in Prince George. Um, CP Rail is following some of its employees and uh, Nutrien in Saskatchewan, the world's largest fertilizer producer, is scaling back its operations because none of those three can get their product to the export market because of the infrastructure being shut down. So it's time overdue for our port infrastructure to be in operation without interruption. Uh, this is, I believe, as well, the, the longest strike that we've seen in, in about four decades, about 40 years on the waterfront. And again, in the the release, the statement from the Maritime Employers Association, uh, when they, they mentioned that we need to ensure supply chain stability as well as resilience for the future. Uh, do you take from that that while this is a four-year deal hopefully it is ratified but nobody wants to be back in this position in four years from now Uh, so does something need to change or or do we need to really focus on that resilience for the future both of the above Um, we need this deal to to be at least four years and we need a deal that is resilient uh, for much much longer so so I'm not familiar with the with the negotiation process. I'm not part of it. I'm not at the table. Um, that is for the parties to negotiate and to agree. Uh, what we do need, though, is a full uh, resolution to this impasse so that our imports and exports can flow again and uh, all steps taken to mitigate uh, this situation going forward. I, I, many different groups are putting out their their responses to this. Uh, the the Board of Trade, I know the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, and uh, kind of a collective sigh of relief. But I'm also sensing or, or hearing from you as well, and I think this is probably what's being felt by other groups also. Like you said, it's now making sure that this is agreed to, and uh, the the numbers too, the the three to four days for every day of this strike, that it's not going to be over. It's not going to be uh, no matter what. Uh, there's going to be a bit of time, a significant amount of time to get things back on track. 
absolutely there's going to be a uh, a transition back into operations there's going to be backlog logistics that need to be uh, rolled out and uh, b- before our manufacturers and so on can get back on so so there's a lot of work to do uh, once the deal is ratified but let's get the deal ratified first and uh, hopefully that'll be a swift and successful process. Fiona Famulak, thank you so much for joining us and for talking about this breaking news today. Thank you, Jill. We've been talking about water conservation and the latest update from the province, about two-thirds of the water basins in BC now being at either level four or level five drought levels. Level five is the most extreme. And once again, the call was put out to people, businesses, everybody in the province to do what they can to conserve water. And Bowen Ma saying that means going above and beyond the water restrictions if possible. Dr. John Richardson is joining us now, a UBC freshwater scientist, also a professor in the Faculty of Forestry. Thank you so much for taking some time. Nice to be here. One of the questions that I get a lot of people email every time we talk about this is we know we've had huge population growth in Metro Vancouver and other parts of BC, but we're not ever talking about the water reservoirs or building new reservoirs, increasing the capacity of our water supply. Why aren't we looking at that? Well, I I don't think it's fair to say that we aren't looking at that. I think there are people, um, so Metro Vancouver has been trying to anticipate population growth and things. I think that the key challenge there is largely where would you build one? Um, So in the uh, Vancouver area, for example, um, one of the things Metro Vancouver has done is to take over the water rights to Coquitlam Reservoir. So many people know that reservoir, but it was actually a BC Hydro uh, power generation station um, there. And so now they've secured the water rights to that. Um, In terms of new reservoirs, we'd have to think about uh, where would those go and we'd be looking further up the valley. So we'd probably be looking at Stave Lake and maybe Alouette Lake and places like that. And again, those are actually, again, power generating um, places. So we have to kind of think about what are we using those, that water for. But there are opportunities. Uh, it does seem that um, we will have to think more about the extremes because the extremes seem to be becoming more and more frequent. And we know that that's kind of uh, something to anticipate from climate change. So we do need to be thinking about these extremes are going to become the norm if we're not really on top of it. Right. And, and certainly we're, we're seeing that. And even uh, the minister referenced that in her uh, media availability earlier today, saying certainly uh, other countries have been dealing with water shortages on a yearly basis and more water shortages than we're seeing here. Uh, when we talk about the, the methods of conserving and the, the, the question or the ask, I suppose, that's going out to residents, uh, avoid watering lawns or water uh, as little as possible, shower less or shower, take shorter showers. Do those measures? make a difference? Well, each each part of that is just a very small increment. But if you think about uh, taking a shower that's um, only half the length of time, so instead of a four-minute nice hot shower, take two minutes, um, that saves a lot of water per person. And everybody's doing that daily, uh, usually. And, um, and of course, we've got millions of people. So by the time you multiply that out, it can make a difference. Um, the, the reality is that we have very few other levers that we can pull in terms of water restrictions. And so it, it's not as if people can stop drinking water, cooking you know, with water, etc. So we do need to use water, but um, we have to conserve where we can because there are not too many alternatives in the short term until we get rain. And you know, that's the real constraint right now is that the inputs to our reservoirs and 
and or groundwater for people using wells um, has been limited by uh, 15 months of below average rainfall and a small snowpack that melted off really quickly. So our reservoirs are basically uh, evaporating away and draining away to human use um, pretty fast. So um, until we get new inputs, and that would be rainfall, uh, we really can't do anything. And we don't know when the rains are going to come. So um, we have to kind of be cautious at this stage. When we talk about infrastructure as well, I know there have been some issues, there have been some examples of the pipes in some cases that are leaking and that kind of thing. Is that a significant cause of water loss or is that something also that that maybe gets overlooked? No, it certainly does get overlooked, and um, and there are some cities that have had enormous problems with loss of water uh, through their uh, water distribution networks. I, I can't actually tell you what um, the statistics are for Vancouver or Metro Vancouver, but um, I'm sure that it's not zero. I'm sure that there is some water loss there. Um, and even in individual homes, people have leaky pipes and things like that, um, or taps that don't turn off quite. And so all those kind of things do help. Um, but you're right, there are some infrastructure kinds of things that we'll all need to do. And, and we'll also need to look at uh, other uses of water, uh, the industrial, uh, agricultural kind of side of things, and think about how can we increase water use efficiency for some of those industries. Because some of them do use water um, at very, very high levels and maybe unnecessarily high. And I don't want to say they're doing a bad job, but I think that they also need to be included in sort of um, thinking about how can we do this better. Right. And and I think that's, uh, I, again, the minister talked about everybody uh, kind of doing their part. Uh, there have been postings, though, and I know some people are sharing on social media. Uh, in one place, the place uh, there was a picture of uh, a glass. I, I don't know if it was a, an office building or an apartment building, but being power washed and window washers up there power washing and questioning, well, if we're, if we're being told to take shorter showers, should we really be power washing buildings right now? Isn't that kind of a waste of water as well? Yeah, I'd have to say that's somewhat frivolous use of water at the moment, given the drought restrictions. So those kinds of things. On the other hand, we also have to think about people's livelihoods. So we can't forget the fact that those people are paid to do that. Um, so, you know, we, do we take away their job for the summer because we're water, we have water restrictions? I don't know. I don't want to sort of judge that. But you're right. There are those kinds of things that do seem somewhat frivolous. And, um, and maybe we need to think about those as well. Uh, when we talk about lawn watering also, and, and you can let your lawn go brown, we know that, and it will uh, probably come back. You can also tell if you're going down a street which uh, people are, are watering their lawns and which ones aren't. It, does it need to go a step further, or do you think it would make a difference if we changed the how people are approaching that? And maybe if you don't care if you have a lawn or not, you put something else there. You do something else that doesn't take as much water. Yeah, that's a, a good solution. Um, lawns are sort of a, a weird social construct in the sense that there's this sort of urban expectation that you're going to have a green lawn, one tree, a few flower beds, and, and that's really not necessary. So it would be very easy to think about other kinds of ground cover, more shade perhaps, uh, more native plants that are somewhat drought tolerant. So there are lots of solutions to that. Um, most plants that do live in these forests uh, around us um, are tolerant of somewhat dry conditions. Um, so there are lots of alternatives, and I think there are some good examples um, where people have actually gone to uh, more native plants and, um, and, and been able to reduce their water use as a result.
You mentioned as well that we're kind of at the mercy of when the rains come and how much precipitation there is. What about things like rain barrels? If, if everybody was to do that, would that, would that be enough to, to make a measurable difference or not? It would. Um, the, the trouble with that is capacity. So um, if somebody had a, say, 500-liter barrel that was filled up the last time we had rain, um, that would probably be exhausted by now. So, um, so it is a solution, um, but it doesn't last for long enough to get us through to, say, end of August or maybe even into October like last year. So um, it really depends on when the rains come. Um, so I think that we have to be precautionary at this stage, uh, anticipating that it could be like last summer. Um, and we're already at the sort of the lowest water levels that we've seen in, in, in a decade. And so uh, it happened really early in the year. And I think that's the real concern right now is that it's happened so early and it's so desperate already. Um, and if we had a situation like last summer, then it will be really, really a challenge for a lot of people. So I think being precautionary is, is really important at this stage. And I know you kind of touched on this. And as I mentioned off the top, you're also a professor in the Faculty of Forestry. How much does that play into it in that we've seen some wildfires, obviously, so far this season? Right now, I know a lot of people are focused on a small fire that was burning on the North Shore. But when wildfires do occur, especially those that are interface fires that we actively fight, what is it kind of a... a a full circle there in that we use water to fight the fire, obviously, but also what kind of what's left behind and and that cycle of fires and water use. Yeah, well, I think one of the interesting connections here is for people to not mistake the fact that our water drought situation is the same as the forests. The forests are in drought and they're they're tinder dry, and so they're very prone to fire and the fire extending very quickly. So, you know, it's all the same issue in some respects, um, and we tend to think of it as two different things, but they are really related. Um, certainly in terms of forest fires, we know that uh, if you have an intense fire, and we're having many intense fires this year. Um, intense fires tend to burn right down into the soils. And one of the things they do is they tend to make the soils um, what we call hydrophobic. So the water kind of bounces off. So when we do get rains, it runs off across the surface. And that can lead to landslides and erosion and all sorts of problems. So the extent of the fires can lead to other water problems, um, both in terms of water quality and where the water goes and the erosion that it causes uh, as a consequence. So there are things that are connected there. Um, in terms of using water from, say, surface waters, you know, we are draining um, aquatic ecosystems um, where there may be fishes or other organisms that are uh, maybe at risk. And so that is something we need to think about. But when you get into drought level four or five, um, it says that there is a probability or, or expectation, sorry, expectation that there may be socioeconomic and ecological harm. And so, you know, we are thinking that there's probably going to be harm to the forests and things like that. The other last thing I'll, I'll mention about that is our drought last year kind of preconditioned the forests to be vulnerable to drought because it was so dry. Uh, many trees died. They dropped branches. Um, and, of course, that's the fuel load that's burning in, in many parts of the province. Right. And one other question, and maybe this is a whole different conversation, and I'm not sure if this is something that you have looked at, but uh, this was something that was brought up earlier today in that some other countries have fully embraced the idea of desalination of water. Is that something, do you, do you think that's on the horizon or something that Canadians and British Columbians specifically should be looking at? I hope not. 
um, you know, we do have a lot of water. Um, it's just it's seasonal, and that's that's the big challenge. the The trouble with desalinization is um, it, it certainly is a solution for places, but it comes at, at large input costs of energy. And so, um, you know, one of the ironies would be if we used water to produce hydroelectric power to power desalinization. That just doesn't make sense. So we would likely be using things like solar, um, maybe wind energy. So we could use uh, renewables, maybe. Uh, but more likely to be reliable, it would have to probably use fossil fuels. So we're back to burning off natural gas or oil to desalinate water. So, you know, if we went that direction and we're starting to burn more fossil fuels, we're adding to the problem that started all of this in the first place, which is the climate change. So, you know, I hope we don't get to the stage of desalinization, but it can be a short-term solution, and especially if we can use renewables. And, of course, during the summer, that is the time we could use renewables um, a little bit more likely than in the winter um, when we don't have the water restrictions. All right. Good information. Dr. John Richardson, thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, thank you for your interest. 106 on this Thursday afternoon. There is a reason why we are playing a birthday song as we are about to talk about water and infrastructure. Trisha Barker joins us now, a former Park Board Commissioner. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Jill. That was just perfect. (laughs) And happy birthday. Thank you. I am so pleased to now be an official senior citizen. (laughs) Well, and in case anybody's wondering, I didn't just out that it was your birthday on the radio. You uh, tweeted about it earlier today, although I did have another, uh, I think an acquaintance of yours emailed me to make sure I knew it was your birthday and uh, so we can say happy birthday to you. So, and I know you you, uh, were sharing on social media as well. So, sounds like you're having a good birthday. Yes, I'm having a very good birthday, and um, it's also a real pleasure to be able to talk to you about this today. It was actually a really great birthday gift for me. (laughs) Well, let's talk about that, because you uh, shared as well, saying we've been asking for this to happen for months. Finally, Metro Vancouver is going to be talking about this massive construction project that is set to take place in Stanley Park. Uh, We're talking about the water tunnel, and uh, before the break, before the news, I actually played a story from Global from Ted Chernecki, a story that he did back in 2021 about this project, some of the concerns neighbors had. But the last line of his story was construction will get underway the following year. We know that didn't happen. So where are we? And can you tell us a bit more about this project? Well, uh, we think that it'll start next year, the project. And, uh, you know, there's been lots of holdups on it happening, but we know it is going to happen. We need this uh, fresh water coming into Vancouver. Obviously, we're growing. We need the, and we've had lots of uh, construction problems going on with pipe failures. So we had a few of those in the park earlier this year. We need this construction happening, and um, it is going to happen, I believe, next year. And the big thing is, is the reason I've been wanting to have the discussion about it. This will be the biggest impact for transportation in Stanley Park that we've ever faced. And um, I noticed that the report finally came up at the Park Board website uh, a few hours ago on page four. That talks about some of the impacts. And this is why I've been wanting to have the public understand what is going to be going on. Because this construction is going to go on for five years right in the middle of Stanley Park and two years at the foot of Chilco. It's going to be six days a week, 10 hours a day, 
and we're going to have those big, huge dump trucks going in and out of the park. And so it is the biggest thing that's going to happen in the park. And the fact that it's being completely ignored as we've talked about bike lanes and we've talked about other forms of transportation, we've talked about the businesses in the parks. This is the biggest concern about what is going to be happening to Stanley Park. And this is also why we've been fighting so hard to get that Beach Avenue exit opened. Because um, having that exit opened is another way to not be in the way of all those trucks that are going to be going in and out. And they will be going in and out at that causeway exit. And um, the idea of having uh, maybe uh, the cars leave Stanley Park through the West End the West End is going to have uh, all the trucks because of the Chilco dig, which, you know, these two things have to happen at the same time. So that's the reason I wanted it to become so like, let's get this right in front of everyone's face so we can all understand what's going on. And we don't, you know, say, oh, we could do this, we could do this. No, we have to face this, these issues of what, what is going on. And that's why um, the big request from the councillors at the city uh, please, please, please open up the Beach Avenue exit. There's plenty of room to have two lanes of traffic, a really big bike lane, and room for pedestrians. You have that all along Beach Avenue. Let's get that opened up because I think that every uh, city councillor in Vancouver knows we need to have this tunnel. We need to have the fresh water coming into Vancouver. Let's all work together to make that happen and uh, hurt as few people as we can while it's going on. Well, and like you just said, it's not really a question or it doesn't, uh, it doesn't feel like it's a question of whether or not this project is needed. And it even in the report talks about the fact that it hasn't really been updated since the 1930s, that this is a main water tunnel that needs this. Like you said, we've been talking about this for years. It even talks, I think, about the, the restoration after the construction. I mean, that's not even supposed to happen until 2029. Uh, there was some talk earlier today about the, fa- the fact that the Beach Avenue exit is being looked at as far as reopening. Do you think it's because of this project? that's now become kind of more top of mind? I think because people are starting to focus on the fact that we can't hide from this. Um, As I said, I've been talking about this for over two years now. Every time I speak about Stanley Park, I go, but what about the water pipe? Um, So I think that uh, people were kind of ignoring that issue about why the Beach Avenue was so important. Um, With this being public, and thank you, Metro Vancouver, for actually um, putting it on at the park board and let the public actually see what's going to be going on. Now the focus is there, complete transparency. Everyone's going to know what's happening. So I don't think we have any choice but to open up Beach Avenue. That that is just a no-brainer. It has got to happen. And we can't put all of this traffic going to the West End if they are also going to be dealing with the trucks coming out of the Chilco dig. What has what caused the delay, do you think, given that this was supposed to be, uh, the construction was supposed to start in 2022? What was it uh, that, and the price I think that uh, Ted mentioned in his story at that point was about $300 million. So one could assume that the price tag is going to be much, much more now. But why the delay? I can only guess, but... We've got the Broadway um, construction going on, and you can see all of the trucks and people and, you know, so much work is going along Broadway. And also, um, I work down near Sanok, 
and you can see all the trucks and going in and out of there. I just assumed that it was because we don't have enough construction workers to then start on this massive big project. So I would think that, um, you know, this is going to be more after the Broadway's finished, or at least at a point where they're not using all the equipment for Broadway. That's what I felt it was happening, why it kept on getting delayed. But um, I'm just, you know, that's just my guess. Right. Uh, so looking at this report, and again, the, the talks about the different sites where, where the work is going to be done. And like you said, it's it's uh, tunnels that are going to be below ground, but people will see and be impacted by a lot of the constructions for the, the three vertical tunnels or shafts in Stanley Park. Uh, it says that the project is nearing the end of the design stage at this point. Construction is supposed to start next year. It will end in 2029. I mean, that is a long time. Not that, that everybody is going to be impacted every day of that, but that is a pretty lengthy time for construction and and to have that happening in Stanley Park. Yes, and from what I have been told, it is five years, six days a week, 10 hours a day, and that information is in this report. So it's not just, oh, a few hours. It is full-on big construction happening. And of course, they said that the, the biggest part will be in the beginning But still, even if you just looked at maybe two to three years of the impact. And the big parking lot that they're talking about is the one right across from the Stanley Park train. And that's all the overflow parking that people who used to go to the train, but those are, that's the overflow parking lot for the aquarium. So the fact that even they're they're going to be losing that entire huge parking lot for five years. Right. That's huge. That is huge. And besides all the fact that um, I would think that Pipeline Road Um, you know, with those trucks going in and out. I'm sure that anyone who's lived in Vancouver knows about these big, huge dump trucks that we've been surrounded by. Um, You know, is that we can lose the the parking along there? There's so many issues to this about just everyday people wanting to go to Stanley Park and the businesses in Stanley Park. The impact on them is going to be massive. And they got through COVID. They're just trying to recover. They're trying to get the tourists back. And now we're throwing this at them. As I said, we have to do this. This this has to happen. But what we want to do is make it as um, as good as we can to help them get through it, to get to the other side. Right. And even looking at the list, and you kind of touched on this, but the list in the report as well talks about the number of direct impacts to the land, saying uh, this includes the removal of trees, the removal of park amenities, temporary closure and or modification of existing pathways and trails, the removal of a biofiltration aerial, uh, area, the removal of an animal hospital, the realignment of the Stanley Park works yard entry, uh, active transportation and traffic flow changes, there will be parking lot closures during the duration of the project, as you mentioned. So that's for the entire uh, five years and then working on the restoration at the conclusion. Uh, But it it goes on to say as well, so the most significant traffic flow impacts will be at the Burrard site in the northern part of the park where there will be the closure of one lane of Stanley Park Drive for the duration of the project. I mean, that's pretty major that we're going to see that lane closed down. And again, I think people understand this is needed, but that's going to have a huge impact. Yes, and I do really appreciate uh, Metro Vancouver being so transparent about just listing all of that because, you know, I've been talking to a lot of the businesses who have had presentations made to them. Um, I've talked to the people at, uh, the, that live around Chilco and what Metro Vancouver said to them. This puts it right out front so people can understand what we're talking about. As to what you said, I think that this is so 
huge that people can understand it. That's why we're hopefully going to get the Beach Avenue opened up because this isn't, you know, we're speculating or guessing. This is going to happen. And um, one of the ways we can help is having Beach Avenue opened up. All right. Well, uh, and again, uh, I know there was some movement on that, certainly discussions that have been taking place. Tricia, thank you so much for joining us on your birthday and bringing us up to date on this and have a great rest of your day. Thank you so very much. Thanks for being with us on this uh, Thursday. I was about to say Friday. It is not Friday yet on this Thursday afternoon. Well, talking about the increase in the number of derelict and abandoned boats. We have talked about this before. There has been federal law passed to try and make boat owners more accountable. But we still see many, many boats, particularly on the B.C. coast, that are just left either sunk or on the beach on the coastline. So what is happening here? Well, John Rowe is joining us, the director of the Dead Boat Disposal Society. John, great to chat with you again. Yes, Jill. Great to talk to you, too. Glad things are all hunky-dory in old Vancouver there. (laughs) They always are, aren't they? Uh, Uh, We've talked about this before, and it's now, I believe, four years after the federal law was passed to kind of try to deal with these abandoned vessels. How well do you think things are going? It's improvement in incremental sort of thing. You know, when you pass a law like that, it takes years to implement. Um, I worked in the federal government for a lot of years and on the enforcement side and, and or the anyways, the long and short of it, it takes a while to get the political support and the monies and everything else. C-47 that allows the expenditure of more money, especially on this coast. So I support what the Coast Guard is doing, the one in particular particular in Cabarro Bay that was charged, you know, and there's no reason that boat should have stayed there for so long, just none whatsoever other than just plain laziness for other lack of a better term. Yeah. And in that case, what, what happened in that case as far as the boat was just abandoned? Yeah, the person lives on, he's got a number of boats in there. That's the problem. And it isn't like he's disabled or anything else. He's a very capable individual. He always has boats in and out. He's servicing or stripping and then they disappear in the middle of the night. And things like that. This one here, he, you know, it went down, and I feel sad for him in the in a blow. But it's a pretty rough area to be in, and anywhere in BC, but in particular in that coast when the wind gets a certain direction in Cabarro Bay, and you're not anchored properly, you're going to go onto the beach pretty quick. So. Hmm. Uh, it, it sounds like, though, and I get what you're saying, it takes a while for these laws to really come in and to make a difference, but it has been five years, or sorry, four years, and it sounds like there have only been two fines that have been issued under this new law to uh, to the boat owners that have either left yeah. their boats or, or just haven't done anything with them. Yeah, strangely enough, just before the person was charged, that one charge went through, I did get a call from Ottawa saying they're going to, you know, really work on, you know, the problem sort of thing. And so they invited us to the table and, you know, I'm in the process of retiring sort of thing, but I'm going to sit down and come up with a, you know, a little bit better, not only enforcement plan, but plan to get rid of them, you know, that's more economical and feasible sort of thing. So, yeah, it's a, you know, we're a big coast, and but we're spread out. You know, we're not that big of a marine population sort of thing, so we're spread out all over the place, and it's expensive to do anything, even for enforcement. So not that they can't do more. They certainly are going to try, according to the to what I heard from Ottawa the other day. 
Hmm. Do you think the law works better in that it's kind of two part in that it's meant to deter boat owners, obviously, from leaving yeah. their abandoned boats, but it could also go after boat owners if government or if, if, if government takes over and removes the boat, deals with it, they can then find the boat owners, go mm-hmm. after them for that money. Which part of that do you think yeah. is better or is more of a deterrent? I think the 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 one they'll get you for leaving it there sort of thing to begin with. Um, the re, the problem being is that we don't know who owns most of these boats. That's still the problem today. And so I've been working with the provincial government, you know, trying to get them to, for particularly uh, 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 pleasure craft, to get ICBC to adopt uh, the, the pleasure craft licensing and things like that. If you own a boat and it's on a trailer or you own a trailer that has a boat, you, you have to license that every year, and it's not cheap, sort of, and insure it on top of that. So this is what I would like to see happen in a quicker pace sort of thing, is who owns these boats? Uh, you know, they're, they're, sometimes they're not even aware their boat's going down, but you got no way of getting a hold of them. If, it were, if, there's, if there was a number on the, just even a cellular number on the side of the thing, say, hey, you deal with your boat or somebody else will sort of thing, you know? Uh, just the other day, and before I, I, I knew we were going to be talking about this today, well, maybe yeah. it was a couple of weeks ago, but uh, one of the beaches in Vancouver, uh, Vanier Beach, it's a, a dog-friendly yeah. beach. Boat, sailboats tend to fly up there a lot of times during windstorms yeah. and because there are, there's nobody living in a lot of them that are, that are moored off there. But there was a sign yeah. saying, uh, owner has been notified, is coming to deal with this boat. It's not there anymore, so somebody dealt with that boat. But is that part of the issue, too, in that there's no, there's no markings on it? that show you who owns it. And if it's an old decrepit no. boat, it's probably more expensive to deal with it after that's happened, probably more than oh, the yeah. boat's even worth. Yeah. You know, we, we've been without funding now. We've made applications both the province and the feds for three separate applications. And we're trying to deal with that as give up. Uh, BC years ago had a problem with abandoned cars like all over the place, right? Every bush, every island was just full of abandoned cars. And they brought in a program back in the early 80s. And, you know, you, you got to turn in your, your boat. And I think that's the way to go here on the coast is have a turn in your dead boat day and put a barge up, start it up in, in Niska, uh, up in Niska territory and come this way and start Port Renfrew and work up on both sides of the island and, uh, and deal with it that way. That's the only way you're ever going to solve this problem is it's so expensive to deal with now and the prices have gone up because of COVID and testing and nobody wants to stuff in their dump anymore. Nobody. So it even drives the cost up even more. So anyways. Hmm. Uh, the, num- yeah. the number I think that we're sitting at right now as far as uh, the, the national inventory of abandoned and wrecked vessels is just shy of 1,800, uh, 1,748 boats that are listed in that inventory. Do you think that number, though, is low? It can't possibly be every boat, right? Yeah. No, it isn't. Uh, part of our requirement to go out and find, uh, to get into this program is we had a whole pile of boats that we already had a Section 38 for, as a, the right to sea sort of thing. So we had to go out and prove it. So I, I had last month. I've been that's what I've been doing up and down the coast. And every time I go out, they don't send me out anymore because I always find five or six more. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I think we're up around 41, 4200 just this coast alone. You Ooh, know, that's, that's a, my roughest guess, yeah, and I think I'm probably wrong there. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And, and I guess, I but, think I'm, sorry, yeah, go ahead. do you think yeah, you're, that's even kind of lowballing it? Oh, yeah, without a doubt. Yeah, I guess I get, you know, I get, because we're becoming more popular online and people don't mind sharing their information for me, you know, I get this stuff in all the time. And oh, my God. <laughs> Anyways, I, 
I do my best to share it with our agencies because if they don't know, they, you know, this is the problem, you know, why Ottawa got a hold of us is that, you know, we have no idea what's out there. And so we need to do a proper inventory. And they finally agreed that, you know, maybe Mr. the old guy's right, you know. <laughs> what's the biggest concern for, for leaving these boats? Uh, for me, uh, you know, I got into this with the cleanup of the Gordon Harbour years ago, and then I, I, I fell in love with our resident orcas, and that's where I'm driven from. So we did one of the first studies on the little tiny wee, the little tiny wee sand lance, the Chinooky. So um, we realized that that intertidal area is crucial, whether you've got storm water or you've got garbage or anything there. That, if that sand lance doesn't survive, the Chinook doesn't survive, the Chinook doesn't survive, but orcas, our resident orcas doesn't survive. So that's what drives me. So I know what these things are made of. You know, I, we've researched this to the bitter end. And, you know, when you build a boat, you have the, all these MSDS sheets that tell you, you know, you can't do this and don't do that and don't breathe this and don't do that. That stuff just doesn't disappear once it's on the boat. You know, it's still in there. So we're, we just got a Hika article from, uh, with, and I've been working with a, a woman professor in England that showed the relationship. It's a good article. We got it up on our site now. And it shows the relationship between glass reinforced plastic and loss of our shellfish and fisheries, period. Mm-hmm. Just without dealing with all the other plastics. So, yeah, anyways. You mentioned... I know what's in them. Yeah. Right. I should have asked you this right off the top, but you mentioned when people call you out or people share with you, uh, the Dead Boat Disposal Society, what is the bulk of what you do? We do the inventory and we do the assessment. And then I gather up all this information and I start, um, I, I go to my friends with Rail Max Group of Companies and Sailor Sea Industrial Services. They give me a rough guesstimate and then I go begging sort of thing. And then when we find them, when we find the, the resources and, and they manage the contract, I, I'm involved in some of the inspection on it, but we're not involved in, in removal anymore. I just can't. I'm too old. <laughs> I don't want to spend that kind of money either. So <laughs> anyways... Uh, it works you, so good. Do you have faith that the law will eventually have a bit more teeth? Because even the two fines yeah. that have been handed out, yeah. the one that, that you mentioned uh, by um, the, the, the Bay, uh, I've forgotten yeah. the name of it now. Is it Carbor- Cadborough? Cadborough Bay uh, on Vancouver Island. Uh, the other one, it sounds like that fine it wasn't actually paid. And there was an attempt to, to have the, the fine paid. And this was for, for a man who left a dilapidated vessel stranded for more than 60 days. Do you have any faith that that people will pay more attention to this or the law will get to a place where it has teeth and actually makes a difference? Yeah, and I, again, the biggest thing is identifying them and insuring them. You know, I, I was never that way, but, you know, it's the only way to do it. If you don't, if you can't afford to, to maintain your boat and you can't afford, you know, you don't want to put a license on it and insure it, then, you know, you shouldn't be in the water. That's really what it comes down to. It's, it's a terrible thing to say, but you know, somebody's got to be responsible, and it's the the owner of the boat and and the and the industry in itself. The industry, the car industry, and all the other industries have taken responsibility. You're seeing very little from the the, the boating industry of manufacturing. I mean, we don't do that much in BC, but we do import from all over the world. There's no requirement for nothing. You know, in Europe, you're required to have an ended life certificate on every boat now. So, aren't you required though if you have a boat? Aren't you required to have the numbers on the side of it that identify or that that yeah. that are specific to your boat? Yep, but again, most of the boats out there don't, and and you need a you know we need to get the RCMP. We've been talking to them quite a bit in the Coast Guard. There's just not enough manpower, you know, sort of thing. So they just 
you know, how do you enforce something like that unless you start, you know, really getting nasty, you know? Well, maybe that's what needs to happen. I, yeah, me too. <laughs> I, I am, I'm, I'm bent that way. I'm not that kind of personality, but I am now. I just, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, John, a it's always, good, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, shake a few good heads once in a while. It works. <laughs> <laughs> John, it is always great talking to you. Thank you so much for joining us once again. Have a great day. You too. Take care. Thank you, Jill. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.